Welcome to My Writing Table, a podcast where you'll hear from your favorite authors, creatives, and publishing professionals. We'll talk about books, the writing craft, and the often wonky journey to publication. Today, we're spending some time with Susie Orman Schnall. Susie Orman Schnall grew up in Los Angeles. She graduated from the University of Pennsylvania and now lives just outside of New York City with her husband and their three teenage sons. She's the author of four novels, and her writing has appeared in The New York Times, The Huffington Post, Pop Sugar, Writer's Digest, and Glamour. Welcome, Susie. Thank you so much for having me. Susie, you've written extensively in print and online magazines, plus you've published four novels. What first attracted you to writing? I've always written my entire life, whether it was terrible poetry when I was younger or stories. Uh, writing has always just been a way that I've expressed myself. I have countless love letters to boys that I never ended up giving them, and I still have them. Um, Thank goodness. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, but I, I've always written. And what's interesting is that even though I write fiction now, it wasn't what I started out professionally writing. I wasn't somebody who grew up thinking, oh, I have to write a novel. I can't wait to write a novel. Um, I worked in marketing and corporate communications when I first got out of college for the first 10 years of my career. So all of my jobs involved writing in some manner, but it wasn't fiction. And it wasn't until I turned 40 and my youngest child uh, started going to school for more hours in the day that I decided to go over to the fiction, to the dark side, right? Can you tell us a little bit about The Balance Project? The Balance Project is basically two things. First, it's a novel. And then it's, it's also an interview series. So a lot of people think that the novel came first, but actually the interview series came first. So the Balance Project interview series is something I started in January of 2014. And I, at that time, was struggling very hard with this whole concept of work-life balance. And let's go back to 2014 when work-life balance was still something that women were struggling with. Uh, I believe Lean In had just come out. It was definitely in the conversation. And I was having a really hard time with it because I couldn't figure out how to be the type of professional person that I wanted to be while also being the type of mother that felt right for me. And so I started asking friends, people I knew who seemed to be killing it somehow in the workplace while also having clean children and um, seeming to thrive as mothers. And after talking to people to try and find out what is the secret sauce, what am I missing here? I decided to formalize it and create the Balance Project interview series. And over the following, I think I ended it in 2018 or so, but I interviewed um, 175 women from all walks of life and all different types of careers asking them all the same exact questions. So the, the interviews read very interestingly because they're, they're apples to apples. You, you know, it, it starts with what does the woman do? Does she have children? Does she not? But then every woman answers the exact same questions. And what's interesting about it though, is that I embarked upon it to help myself, right? To find out what it was that I was doing wrong. How could I achieve this glorious and glorified work-life balance? But instead, what I found out is that nobody is achieving work-life balance unless they're making sacrifices somewhere. And that was the biggest takeaway for me is that I had to decide what sacrifices I was willing to make. For some women, that's sleep. For some women, that's their health. 
For some women, it's their marriage. You know, everybody, nobody can sustain. And then that's the important thing to think about is that you can have this concept of work-life balance in a sustainable way, but only for a short amount of time. And that obviously looks different for every woman. But in order to maintain this high level of being a, an accomplished professional woman and the type of mother that feels right for you and the type of marriage or partnership or non that feels right for you, um, as well as having a life and, and focusing on health and wellness and all that, like you can't do it all and philanthropy and, and your, your spiritual. So, um, so that was really helpful for me. And I really learned a lot. And every time I would code an interview and then post it on my website, it was like a little dose of affirmation for me. And it, it made me realize that when you set yourself up to achieve this glorified work-life balance, you're setting yourself up for failure. So um, I learned a lot about it. I ended up doing a lot of speaking engagements about work-life balance based upon my interview series. And uh, it, it eventually inspired my second novel, which was called The Balance Project, which was a fictional approach to work-life balance, but there hadn't really been very many novels about work-life balance. And what I loved about that book is that I I didn't judge any approach to it. You know, any type of mother or non-mother or worker or non-worker that you chose to be, they were all celebrated in the novel. And one of the things when I would ask a woman to be interviewed, I, I made it very clear that she was to answer the questions honestly, to not become a superwoman, you know, to, there, there was no room in the culture of my interview series to pretend that you were killing it. You know, I wanted the raw honesty, the authenticity, no burnishing some ideal, you know, perfect image of a woman. And I think everybody really complied. Obviously, when you're answering a series of interview questions, you are putting forward uh, an appearance that you are creating, you know, so everything is subjective. But I really think that women felt very comfortable being a little bit messy. When you decide to write about a period in history, where do you begin that research? So my first two novels were contemporary fiction and my second two ended up being historical fiction. But what's funny is that I never set out to become a historical fiction author. What happened was that I heard on the radio, on NPR, they were talking about the, the subway, the Miss Subways contest, which was an advertising program that took place in the New York City subway system from 1941 to 1976. And I found it fascinating. And I thought it would be so interesting to create characters who participated in that contest in the 40s. And that's how I became a historical fiction author. So I tend to think of myself more as somebody who writes commercial contemporary fiction in the past, rather than someone who writes historical fiction. And it was interesting. I was on a um, a webinar with some authors the other day, and somebody asked in the comments, what, what is the definition of historical fiction? When does it have to take place? What, what, what does that even mean? And, and it's a question that I, that I grapple with, because I don't write about wars, nor will I ever, because I think that that's a lot that you need to know and a lot that you need to get right. Um, I tend to find slices of life of, of American history, um, and then use them as settings and build characters who would have lived during that time. So that's how those stories have all been born for me is finding out about something in the past that I thought was interesting and then develop. Which leads me to ask, does the era drive the novel or the characters? I think you've explained that really well. For me, it's either an event 
or a setting, you know, the, my two historical fiction novels, one was about this advertising contest, the Miss Subway's contest, which became my novel, The Subway Girls. And then the second was the 1939 New York World's Fair, which became the setting for uh, We Came Here to Shine, which was my most recent novel. So yeah, I like to learn all about those events and then, and then develop characters who would have lived, lived them. Well, then on that note, what point in history do you find most interesting? Oh, gosh, I don't know how to even answer that question. I, I will say that I love the early 1800s that Jane Austen wrote about um, from a very romantic and naive perspective of the sense that having tea and going calling on people and wearing <laughs> those dresses and um, dressing for dinner and going to balls, that's all very romantic and and looks like fun and just getting to drink tea and eat eat cookies and read books on a window seat near a fire. However, that being said, I realized that opportunities for women were nil, right? It was, you have to get married and you have to marry up and you have to, um, you know, and that was a very uh, whitewashed and privileged lifestyle that you see, uh, you know, what about all the people who weren't going for tea and wearing fancy dresses? So um, I, but I love learning about all times in history the 60s even, civil rights era, it's, it's all very fascinating to me. I will answer that question also another way in that I find the, the women who came of age in the 40s and 50s really interesting too, which is what, um, you know, my first historical fiction novel, The Subway Girls, is set in 1949, and We Came Here to Shine is set in 1939. And what I'm fascinated by is that those were eras where opportunities for women weren't entirely evolved. They were allowed to be wives, nurses, teachers, and secretaries. And what I love to do is create characters who were bold and ambitious and wanted to break those rules. Um, And I always think about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who would have been a contemporary Mm -hmm. of my characters, and look what she did. And to think about how many obstacles were in her way from society probably from her own family, from her instructors and professors, and just what she did to get where she got, what she did. And to think about how many obstacles were in her way from society, probably from her own family, from her instructors and professors, and just what she did to get where she got. Isn't it a wonder that she wasn't constantly exhausted? Yeah, and she probably was, and she fought through it. She and kept so, going. Yes, yeah, she kept going. She kept going. Well, what are you reading now? I just finished last night a book called Who is Maud Dixon by Alexandra Andrews, and it is a kind of psychological suspense novel a la Patricia Highsmith. And I just finished listening to a book called this is how it always is by Lori Frankel. Which that is one of my absolute favorite oh my books gosh. ever. Ever. One I'm gonna have Lori on. I'm gonna have Lori tell me what you thought of okay. it. Well, I am so late to that party, which I realized and <laughs> I don't know why I never read it. And then a friend of mine who just finished it said, You have to do this next. And I decided to listen to it. And I will tell you that the woman who recorded it, her name is Gabra. And for some reason I feel horribly, but I'm blanking on her last name right now was the most phenomenal 
audio narrator I've ever heard. And that story, just everything about it, it the, the, the layers of it and the beauty of it. And there were times where I would listen and it would take my breath away and I'd have to pause it. And I just think it's something that everybody, the grace and the beauty and the brilliance that Lori Frankel brought to that story is just phenomenal. And I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, for my book club, I'm starting a book called Luster by Raven Leilani, which has gotten a lot of awards and recognition. So I'm really looking forward to starting that. What are you writing now? Actually, very exciting news was that We Came Here to Shine, my most recent novel set at the 1939 World's Fair, was optioned for film. Yay! Congratulations! Thank you. And the production company that optioned it asked me to write the screenplay. So I have been spending the last several months writing that screenplay, revising it, revising it, revising it. I think my final draft was accepted uh, a week or two ago. But that was a really wonderful and interesting experience to take on a new medium, try to learn how to do it, uh, and be mentored by the the lead producer, head writer of this production company, who taught me so much. And it's it's been a great experience. And in the meantime, uh, the the idea that I had wanted to turn into my next book, I realized would be a really interesting television program. So I also wrote the pilot for a 60 minute drama, um, which also I finished my last draft of. So I um, have, you know, been focused on television and film. In your opinion, what makes for good writing? I think... I heard somebody say this once, so I'm going to steal it. And I don't remember who said it, but I think it's the, it's being transported. Um, That being said, I think I'll reframe my answer to say it depends. I think good writing depends on what you need from writing at that particular moment. In other words, if you need a book to transport you because life is stressful or life is hard and you need to escape somewhere, then how wonderful is it to get lost in a book and get out of your own brain for a little while. If you need motivation, if you need beauty, if you need poetry, then that's what good writing is at that particular moment for you. Um, I tend to like things that are uplifting. Um, I also like inspirational. I mean, but for me, good writing could either be Lori Frankel writing her novel or it could be Glennon Doyle writing her. When people say to me, was it a good book? Was it a good movie? I say, whether I was entertained or not. That's the requirement. Did it entertain me? It might not have been my favorite book, but if I was entertained and I turned the pages, then yes, for me, that was, that was wonderful. Well, what are the hardest scenes for you to write? Well, one thing I'm terror, I I think I could never write and I've never tried, but is writing mystery and writing twists and turns. And I don't understand how people do that. And I admire that so much that the people who write domestic suspense or psychological thrillers or mysteries, because they had to come up with an answer that you didn't think of while you were reading the book. You know, I read something once that said, think of what the reader thinks is going to happen. Then think of something else, then something else, then something else. And maybe that's what should happen. And, and just the, the thought and the work and the creativity that goes into that I, I admire very much. So that's something um, when I've tried to add twists and turns and a little suspense to my books, that's that's the hardest thing for me to think about and write. 
This week I spoke with Kimberly Bell and Kathleen Barber and just hearing their processes and the way you put it so well about how they have to basically run that gauntlet of, and this, and this, and this. I just finished the book, Pretty Things by Janelle Brown, and she does that beautifully. In that book, I just couldn't put it down. I kept turning the pages and I was, it was just wonderful. Well, Nee, I'll check that one out. What are the scenes that when you know you sit down at the desk that day and you're like, yay, I get to write this? What is it? I, I, I think dialogue comes a little bit easy to me and I, I hear it in my head. And I also then read it back out loud to make sure it sounds normal. I think that that was something that I struggled with in my first couple novels. It was a little bit more stilted. And now I'm, I think I'm getting a little bit better at that. But I outline, I'm definitely a plotter. So when I sit down for the day to write, I know what I'm going to write about. I have no idea what's going to happen, but I'll have the broad strokes. In other words, I could write 3000 words knowing what 10 of that, you know, like the, the, so I don't necessarily know exactly what I'm going to write, but I know what I'm going to write about, which helps me. But yeah, I think dialogue. And I think that that's what made me enjoy going from novel writing to screenplay writing was that for me, the, the thought process of the character or the descriptions, that's not as much what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the character getting from one point to another and the action of it all. And that's what you have to do in film and television writing, because your your word count is so much smaller, your page count is so low that you have to make sure that you're packing something into every scene and every sentence. Now, there's no room for backstory, that's for sure. For sure. <laughs> what does your writing day look like? It really, it's so cyclical. It really depends. When I'm researching and plotting and outlining, you know, it's basically a full day, like nine to four, or it depends depends if I have to go do a school pickup or if what my day looks like, but I definitely sit at my desk and I, I do a full day. What changes is when I'm writing a first draft of a manuscript and then I'm working, I, I eliminate almost everything from my responsibility list as I can. I, I don't exercise. I don't make dinner. I try to get my kids picked up and I'm working from like eight to six or eight to eight, depending upon the day. I write my first drafts very, very fast in 10 to 14 days. Um, sometimes I take myself away towards the end, towards around 50, 60,000 words just to get over the hump. I'll go away for two nights and really just focus because I find that I just need to get it out and I need to get it off. It, it stresses me out to have the story in me once I've plotted it. And, and of course, halfway through the writing, everything changes. So I have to re-outline the second half of the story. And then the editing part is back to a nor- more of a normal lifestyle for me. But, but those, those two weeks or so of writing the first draft, I, it's almost like I, I feel like I'm running a marathon every single day and I have to brace myself and I have to talk myself up and say, okay, you ready? Go. And it's like diving off this tall cliff and knowing it's going to be horrible, but I'm going to sleep well that night. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about how your author relationships have affected your work? Oh, I think that the author friendship community that I've been lucky enough to become a part of in this profession over the past 10 years has been one of the most wonderful benefits of becoming an author. I have met the smartest, most generous, supportive women. But I'm going to get this saying wrong, but it's that uh, high tides raise all the ships. And it's like, if you're writing a book, I can 
support you and tell everybody to read your book because it's not like they're only going to read one book. So I have found that we celebrate each other, we support each other, we come to each other's launch events in the olden days when they would be in person and now when they're on Zoom. Um, We celebrate each other on social media and we support each other with brainstorming and early reads. I've been in a Zoom, a Thursday Zoom talk since the pandemic started every Thursday from five to six, this group of authors and I get together on Zoom and we just talk about what the challenges that we are facing either in our current work in progress or something with our editor or agent, or do you know how to do this or what's the best solution for this? And it's just wonderful. Very cool. Well, what is the best writing advice you've received? The writing advice that I like, there are two. One is something I read in a Danny Shapiro book, and it was to don't set out to write a long, wonderful book, set out to write a short, terrible book. (laughs) Because anybody can write, not anybody, but you can write, an author can write a short, terrible book. It's just the matter of, you know, button chair, put your fingers on the keyboard and start writing. And it will probably not end up being a short, terrible book, but, but you will have taken those expectations away from yourself. And the second advice that I like is to read up and read around. In other words, if you are writing historical fiction, you need to read around, meaning you need to read the books that are in your genre. You need to know what the constructs are, what the expectations of the reader are. Not to say that you need to write in a particular formula, but book selling is a business. And you need to somewhat adhere to the basic, most foundational rules of that genre in order for your book to be marketable. Plus, you can learn so much from the people who have done it really, really well. And then when I say read up, I mean read authors who are technically much more skilled than you are, because that's how you learn new creative ways to use voice and story structure and exposition and and all of the different techniques that I think are so important. When you finish a new manuscript, you've done your, you know, you said it takes you a couple of weeks to get that first manuscript done. Okay. Let's take it past that. You finish that, you revise, you edit, you've polished it. It is ready to go. How do you celebrate? Oh gosh. Mostly with tequila. (laughs) (laughs) What brand tequila? I've been drinking Casamigos lately, but I'll pretty much drink anything that isn't going to make me sick. Tequila cocktail. I am just the happiest person. It is such a load off. It's such a wonderful feeling to A, write the end on, on the first draft of a manuscript and then to turn it into the agent or the editor or whoever's going to do the first read. And then the, the DNA, which for those who are um, not working authors is called delivery and acceptance. That's when you turn your final draft into your editor. I mean, there still will be copy edit rounds and um, first pass, second pass. There's still many, many rounds after that. But when the heavy lifting is done, it is the best feeling ever. Tell us what's next. Well, I'm still kind of in the midst of working with the production company on We Came Here to Shine and uh, the pilot... I wrote. And so I don't know exactly what's next because I'm still thinking about that. And then I do have an idea that might become a book or something else. I don't even know yet. And I'm mulling it around in my mind. And I, I'm kind of next week going to 
start taking pen to paper for the first time and see what it will become, but it's still too early to talk about. Thank you, Susie. Thank you. And I enjoyed speaking with you. I love talking about the process and the business and um, it's so tricky and there's so many components to it that it's always wonderful to talk to another author and, and, and hear, hear how they manage it all as well. To learn more about Susie, go to susieschnall.com. Writer's Table podcast music by Pavel Uden and photography by Casey Meineke. If you like what you're hearing, please hit the subscribe button and consider leaving a review.